This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We were totally supporting our film habit. You had like three jobs. I had like yep. two jobs. It slowly took over None our life. None of them related to photography whatsoever. Right. We're toiling away, doing these things that we don't care about, that we're not getting any reward. No, and what we were doing with the photographer, we truly believed deep down it was important. Even like, though no one was seeing it. Even though no one was seeing it. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, Ruman Alam. Ruman, welcome back to the show. It has been a long time, Isaac. Um, But as you know, I have been somewhat buried in work, in some of the other work that I do. But I have to say that sort of counter to my own expectations, I found this week's interview to kind of be restorative, to kind of make me think about my work in a different way. I mean, I hesitate to use the word inspiring, but it was kind of inspiring. That's so great. And you can hear just a little taste of it in that opening cold open, the two delightful voices of our guests this week. So who are they and what do they do? So James and Carla Murray, who are our guests this week, are partners in life and in work. They're photographers, right? They begin their practice documenting graffiti in New York City. But over time, they've evolved to document the city itself, They're really interested in the evanescent. Graffiti is meant to vanish eventually. And sadly, now some of the most interesting parts of the cityscape also vanish. And you see that reflected in James and Carla's work, in their books like Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York City, or you might discover them where I did, which is on Instagram, where their pictures are reliably one of the better parts of my feed. That's amazing. And uh, our Slate Plus listeners get a little extra tidbit this week, right? Yeah, James and Carla and I talked a little bit about this New York tendency, and maybe it's not just New York, maybe all cities are like this, to romanticize the place's own past, you know, to talk about what it was like when men wore hats and you could commute into the old Penn Station, right? How do you balance that desire for a romantic past with the reality that life is about change? Well, frankly, I think you would be a fool to not want to listen to that. So do not be a fool. Join Slate Plus. You'll get exclusive members-only content, zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new podcast, Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll be supporting the work we do right here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. To sign up, go to slate.com slash working plus. Enough of the patented Isaac Butler hard sell. Let's listen in on Ruman's conversation with James and Carla Murray. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm going to begin by saying that, James and Carla, you guys are photographers by trade. But I wonder if that's the word you would use to describe yourselves to someone that you had just met. Because I I can think of a lot of other words that also kind of describe what it is you do, but are you photographers first and foremost? Definitely. Definitely, yes. And then I guess we would add, sometimes we say we're photographers slash multimedia artists. Yep, for sure. Do you ever claim the, the designation of advocate or documentarian or preservationist or even anthropologist? Because that's what I think of when I look at your work. Sure. Well, definitely advocates for small businesses. That's definite without a doubt. I mean, that's something that's been a passion of ours for, oh, I mean, close to 30 years now. Right. So if you are photographers, one thing I'm really curious about is whether you studied photography formally or whether it's a form that you just started experimenting with at a certain point in your lives. We're 100% self-taught. Yep. We, we went to college, but neither of us ever took no. a photography class in our lives. No. Never. We've, we kind of first discovered um, the capabilities of the modern camera when we were taking pictures in a subway tunnel. We went with a friend of ours who's like a subway fetishist who, who just loves subways and everything about him. He knows all the schedules, knows everything. And me and Carla went with him and we we had spent the time prior to this taking pictures of graffiti. Right. I don't want to get too far off track. Right, that's but our that's our background as far as that's like, where we really started collecting photography and, and and using the camera daily. And interviews. And interviews. But we were in the subway tunnel and we push the button and the flash goes up on the camera we had at the time. And the guy that was with us, this is like, a film camera. This is like before, right. way before. Right. The guy that was with us, he said, you can't use a flash down here. It's just attracting way too much right. attention. We're, we might as well be, you know. Right. Up on and then when we got home, say, we're, we're we, we didn't use the flash. And we got home and everything was all blurry and orange and horrible. And I remember thinking, how does his photos do so much better? And I turned the camera and I actually looked at the top of our camera for the first time. And I remember seeing all the buttons and uh, settings and everything. And it was like discovering a video game where you go to the next level. Like, oh, these are all these are all things to get me to another level. And right, because we were like taking things on what we call green mode, just green mode, which like is, auto you mode. Know, like let the camera decide. <laughs> yeah, let the camera every, decide. Right, like and, everything for you as far as like the brightness and the aperture and you know. And that was the first time it totally failed us. And and that's when me and Carla, the day I remember it, started to what I would think became photographers. Right, like we right. actually started to explore app, right. like all everything. We took every book out of the library. We actually started looking and, right. and shooting and trial by error and all this stuff. And, and that was the day. We were able to capture graffiti art, which was what we were documenting at the time because we would not be going out at night. It would just be during the daytime and the so-called green mode, auto mode or whatever you want to call it. We're shooting a wall. We're shooting a wall that doesn't move and it's flat. And like how, you know, there's not letting the camera decide what, what it wants to focus on was a pretty easy thing because there was only, there was only a flat wall. Right. And then the, the lettering style of graffiti 
is what in in talking to the graffiti artists in interviewing them and finding that this everyday art form um, was disappearing. The only truly modern art form was disappearing, and they had fascinating stories to tell. So while we were out shooting those, we noticed these mom and pop stores had beautiful signage with with equally exciting to us at the time lettering styles. So you're describing working as photographers shooting graffiti art in the 1990s in New York City at a time when the technology of photography was different than it is today um, and really expensive. I'm wondering if you guys had a day job, if you had some other, if this was a passion that you were indulging and investing in or whether you were working as photographers even then. No, we were not working as photographers then. We were totally supporting our film habit and because it, it was quite expensive by, I mean, we were, yeah. you had like three jobs. I had like yep. two jobs. It slowly took over None our life. None of them related to photography mm-hmm. whatsoever. Right. It was just, that was like our thing. That was like our, um, I guess outlet, you could say yeah. our outlet for mm-hmm. the stress of like, just an addiction yeah. trying, you know, I mean, to, to survive in the city, in an expensive city to live in. We would sit home after we got a roll of film developed and in, in, in dissect them and go over them and do a post-mortem on the whole thing. And we, like, we would relive the whole mission um, of taking the photos and everything. And it became like a way of establishing that we're here. We were going through so many rolls of film, like I kind of made a, like a discount plan with them and then I'd, I'd pay in advance. Yeah, I think they just felt sorry for us. Yeah, I'd pay in advance for like how <laughs> many they... rolls I think I would going to drop off that week right. and they would give us a, a discount on, on the processing yeah. because we can develop, we, we always have developed our black and white film, but yeah. color we never messed with. I mean, we, no, the we... reason we live in the apartment we still live in is because our bathroom has no window. And we were nice very excited about that when we found this apartment. We knew we could make it into a dark room really, really, really easily. And we still use film today, but we have a saying that it has to be film worthy. Right. And that's because it's gotten so expensive right. to develop and process. I mean, all the places that were in our neighborhood are gone. Are gone. I mean, there is one. Yeah. I won't say they're gone. There's one, but I mean, I don't. I'm not really thrilled with the way they... Yeah, the quality is kind of gone. The quality, to, to be honest, you're not going to believe care. this. But we mm-hmm. send our film to Florida. For a lab there. An old mom and pop. I mean, they must be like 90 years old. They, they never mess it up. And, and it's perfect. Whereas, like, I don't know, the, the, the place in Manhattan that, that... I mean, we're lucky that we have some place that we can get film developed. And a lot of people use it, a lot of photographers. But I don't know. It's just... I guess they don't have anything... Right. To compare it to like how much better mm-hmm. it really could be but well but we know so what you just said which is that like contemporary photographers may rely on these sort of local to get their film process may go to this local shop but they don't know how much better it might once have been to me that's sort of like what your photographs of new york city reveal because new york city to me is still a great place it's an amazing place but sometimes i look at your pictures and i think like oh it was a maybe a better place and that is gone now and people who are just arriving you know the college graduates who are going to arrive in june uh, this year will never have experienced that and they'll still love this place but they won't know what they missed out on even the life you guys are describing which is like a couple of kids out of college living in the east village 
you know, working a couple jobs and surviving in this expensive place. It was still expensive in the 1990s, but doing art and doing this thing you cared about, that feels harder and harder to come by to me in, in New York City. Oh, I totally agree. I mean, totally honestly, agree. we feel so blessed, so blessed. I mean, 1999, I, I know the exact year, was a b- very big turning point in our lives as far as making a decision that maybe we should think more about photography as a career. Um, right. But it didn't happen then for us because we couldn't afford to. But that's when it, it we said, you know, this is this is terrible. James and I were like two passing ships in, yeah, in our lives other. because we very, very spend very little time together. The only quality time together that we had was when we weren't working that we were doing our photography. And we said, you know what, this, this really sucks. Like um, we're toiling away, doing these things that we don't care about, that we're not getting any reward. No, and what we were um, doing with the photographer, we truly believed deep down it was important. Right. Even like, though no one was seeing it. Even though no one was seeing right. it. Because there, there are some photographers prior to us that were documenting graffiti when they were on the trains. But at the time that we were documenting on the streets, those people kind of had fallen off. Like they were no longer documenting gra- graffiti in its heyday. Yeah, it lost something when it left the subway. And I understand right, that. So they stopped. As far as we know, they really weren't documenting it like right. we were. And, I mean, But we thought it was exciting from, for the... This is from what the graffiti artists right. told us because they knew who was taking their photos. So, right. I mean, there was no other... Right. There was no book on the subject. There was not, nothing. Right. There was this big void in time where nobody was documenting it. And we had, you know, I don't even know. I mean, we had to rent a storage unit because our apartment just it got overwhelmed Overrun, with the yeah. amount of film. Right. You know? uh, we live in a tiny studio. It, it just, it, you know, every kitchen cabinet. Yeah. Like I, had I said, no it took over. Anymore. I had it all filled with with shoe boxes of, of photos. Yeah, and it's still that way. It's yeah. still that way. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I have two cabinets devoted to so-called right. food. Um, and all the right. rest is, is photo stuff. But one night we were in St. Mark's bookshop. Uh, bookshop. And that was when it was on Third Avenue in, in Stuyvesant Street. Mm-hmm. And we saw a skateboard book. We liked how it looked. It was called Dysfunctional. Like, Dysfunctional. I, I remember and the name. we turned the book over and we got the address of the publisher off the back. Right. And we photo, we, we invested uh, going to Kinko's and getting color photocopies of some of our photos that we really liked. Right. And I typed up, I said, oh, you know, um, it's a disappearing art form and, you know, the, the temporary nature of it and et cetera. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. And then I, and then I put in a couple of blurbs of interviews that we had transcribed with the so-called famous graffiti artists that we had. Yeah. We'd cut out with scissors, an interview that had no typos like, Oh yeah, this one came out good. And we right. cut the little strip out with, with, and taped it to a piece of paper. So right. it looked nice. Because the graffiti artists always <laughs> said, Oh, you guys have so many photos. You, you should make a book. Right. And that, that was like, Right. The most ridiculous thing that we're like, oh, yeah, right. Like, right. who are we to make a book? And like, we don't, right. you know, we're not, in, we're not authors. And we we're put them all in a man- manila author. envelope and we mailed it off. And it was like playing a lotto. We never expected to hear anything or it was right. just fun doing at the time. It felt like, right. yeah. We just thought, oh, this is a cool book on skateboarding. Maybe they'd be interested in graffiti. Too. Yeah. So we did it all. We mailed it off. And then three days later. Three days later, we get a... um letter we had to sign for yeah we had to sign for the letter and we met our we met our editor and they said yes we we love this we want to publish it this was was in california we never even considered that maybe a new york one or 
We just like the, the skateboard book. Right. And we're like, oh, my God, somebody said yes. Yeah. I'm a, and he's like, I'm going to come out and meet you guys. And that's right. like when we're like, wow. Right. He flew out here from California with a big deal. <laughs> big to, deal. To he's a with us super our, nice guy. Right. In our apartment. This is the editor of Ginkgo Press. His name is David Lopes. Yeah, we're still friends with him we're to this still, day. We're still friends with him to this day. And... You know, he's like, yeah, let's let's do it. And he's like, I think I need to come out and see what you what you, what have. you have. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, see, like what materials? Because we're like, oh, what do you want us to mail our, our shoe? Our shoe boxes out to you? And he's like, no, no, no. That's, that's, we had we had literally no clue. Right. Like how to put together a book. We thought they just think about it. So he came out and he started and, and he's like, how much do you have? And we open up our closets and our cabinets are like this. Right. And, he, and, and he's like, like holy cow. out all over the place. I mean, right. he was here for, I mean, he's probably expected to spend an hour with he us. He was here like six, seven hours. And then and we then went to dinner. The yeah. And then he, came, he stayed yeah. always, came back the next day and he's going through everything and he loved it. Yeah. And the funny takeaway of the whole meeting was we had a couple storefronts up on our wall. I'm tapping on the table because yeah. I'm getting excited. <laughs> and, we had these long panoramas of full blocks of storefronts up on the wall. Right. Because at the time we had also started photographing the, the mom and pop stores. Right. And it, because we had done these, like what I call a panorama, we know it wasn't panorama the graffiti because there wasn't a panorama camera. Like we had to take, the, we had to stitch together the photos. I mean, that's how you do it in Photoshop now. I mean, so, so, yeah, but so we had to tape now, them together and we, we just, did the same with block long of mom and pop stores. Right. So we weren't just documenting single stores. We were very interested in what a whole block looked like from end At to the end. Time, right. So say like second Avenue between St. Mark's, which is the equivalent of eighth to right. seventh street. Which so we would stretch from gem spot to love saves the day. Right. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the second day with our editor, David Lopes, Right. Where everybody's exhausted now. He realizes we have no clue what right. to do. He got up from the table, I remember. And then he just walked over to our wall. And he's like, what's this? He's like, what's this stuff? And I'm like, oh, you're not going to be interested in that. That's um, these mom and pop stores in, uh, you know, here in the neighborhood. And he's like. And we have single ones, too, we told him. And he's like, yeah. oh, wow. He's like, you have more of these? He's like, well, can we take this out of the frame? Can I can I look at this? And he and I we did because like I said it was just taped together photos so I just took the frame apart because yeah and he started folding them like into a frame. book format the pano and right and, he's like we can make it, a book of this stuff and we're like what and, right and me you know I'm like getting out boxes full of the stuff in in tapes we had and the little we, micro cassettes right and then we told him we did interviews with the owners too and he's like no. <laughs> he's like, how many do you have? And I'm like, oh, shoeboxes. Because we had these, like James is saying, these little micro cassette recorders. That's right, what like we the, were using. The Get Smart, you know, like mm-hmm. the little tapes. Right. Mm-hmm. He's like, this is your next project. Right. He's like, this is, well, you finished your graffiti book, but this is, but this is, this should be your next that's project. That's when our life changed because that's when we're like, wow, we can, we can maybe be a photographer. Mm-hmm. Right. So then, um, really, uh, I stopped working. Before me, before James, like I said, well, one of us has to devote more time to start. Well, and just getting the book together, right? Documenting mm-hmm. things and everything like that. And, everything. You know, the book deal, like it's like all we did was use the money from the book deal to buy a scanner. So, like, we didn't. That's it. You know, people think, oh, you get a book deal, like you know, like you're like Martha Stewart or somebody like that. Yeah, but we had no idea. Of, no, I mean, right. it was enough to buy a good scanner, which is what we needed to actually make the book. Mm-hmm. Like, like or, we bought or, a big table and we would lay them out and we'd be like, okay, this is good. This is not good. And then I'd get my little notebook because I'd carry around a little notebook and then I'd be like, okay, (laughs) we still have all those notebooks. We still have all those notebooks with all the settings, what time of day, the weather, like all those things (laughs) matter. The parking. So don't forget, we would write down the alternate side parking because cars, (laughs) 
So cars oh, were blocking right, the wall. Right. right. There's a lot of things that go into it that you wouldn't think about it. And a friend of ours said, oh, what you guys do is so easy. I'm going to go start, you know, taking these photos of, of, of these stores. And like, yeah, okay, the stores. Well, go ahead. You know, yeah, go ahead. what you got to do. Um, and then he came back. He's like, wait a minute. Yeah, what do you do you about the awnings? Right. How did you get it? The awnings no are all crooked. People or cars or this and that. And we're like, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Now you know why. Yeah, there's the whole world around it. Do all this stuff. I'm like, it's it's a lot trickier. It's a whole dance. Than you think. <laughs> mm -hmm. We'll be back with more of Ruman's conversation with James and Carla Murray after this. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the things we'd love to do with this show is to help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a question about getting down to work or what you can do to improve communication with collaborators, really anything at all, send it to us at working at slate.com or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's get back to Ruman's conversation with James and Carla Murray. I see a real relationship when I hear you talk about graffiti, right? Because graffiti, especially in um, the mainstream perception of it in the 80s and 90s, was that it was blight, that it was a symptom mm -hmm. of a city in decline, um, that it was ugly and something that needed to be sanitized and sort of removed from the surface. Like, no respectable people would want to live in a place that was covered with graffiti, right? And you described to me seeing a kind of beauty in it, seeing an accomplishment of... Um, art, you described it, James, you used, you said it was like the the only real modern art form, which is a very striking thing to say. And I see a real relationship between that perspective on graffiti as a sort of vernacular form of the streets and your reverence for a vanishing New York City streetscape. Because the same kind of person who would have said in 1979, oh God, this graffiti is so ugly, is the kind of person who's going to say, all of the chaos of these sort of ugly storefronts and awnings and the backpacks for sale and the, you know, the Dominican church down the street. Like, I want to get rid of all of this and just put in, like, a nice, beautiful Chase Bank. It's the same <laughs> kind of perspective, in my opinion. Exactly. 100% uh, correct. The homogenation of New York City. That's yep. what... And a we, uh, we strive for conformity right. is, is killing storefronts also. Let alone the economics, let alone, yeah, go ahead. Touch. Right. We, we ask store owners because at first it was for us, for us to document a store, it had to have a particular look and feel because we were using 35 millimeter film. So it got expensive to just keep on taking thousands. I mean, there's thousands of stores for us to document. Right. So we would have to say, well, 
we have to like it. It has to be first visually interesting to us. So that was not a store with an ugly plastic awning. You know, we no. hated all those. No, or, or the awning that stretches the whole block right. uniformly over or all the stores. they didn't have any sort of window display. Like you didn't even know what was going on inside the store. I mean, sometimes that right. was intriguing, but, yeah. not, but not when we were initially documenting it. Right. Um, you know, it wasn't like they were hiding something. It was just because they could care right. less. And yeah, that's what drove us. What exactly what you said was what drove us. Right. We uh, liked all these quirky little places. And sometimes we document right. a store, we'd go back because we didn't have time to interview the owner. And in that whatever lapse of time, they changed the storefront. And we're like, what? Why on earth did you change the front, your facade? Why did you take down that great hand painted sign? Why do you right. have new glass windows? Right. That Bathroom are- tile on the outside. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Or like, yeah, that foam marbles <laughs> tiling stuff that they put. Like, right. And like, well, why on earth did you do that? And they're like, oh, well, the business improvement district came by. Yeah. And they told us that we're bringing down the street. You know, that, yeah, it's bringing it down. Us, like, you know, money or something like that to go and change our old storefront. Yeah. No. And usually like the old guy, and anybody know, that actually the, lives the grandfather there. of the, the mom and pop business would not be into it at all. But it no. was like the younger owner, would the younger be owner on board yeah. because he'd be like, Oh no, this right. is looking tired. And, and he didn't appreciate the beauty. So like, right. a lot of the times the older generation did yeah, that right. they were like, Oh yeah, I spent good money for that hand painted sign. And like mm-hmm. that guy was yeah, so it's nice. still, it's still perfectly they, good. They appreciated mm-hmm. it, but sometimes the, 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 the newer people that were maybe working with them didn't, and they make this deal with the business improvement district. And that was, that was the end of our so-called beautiful store that we had documented. We're like, right. Oh man, you made your own decision. Do you have that sign? Like, <laughs> right. like what did you so do that, with it? That- they dumped it. I mean, lots of times they dumped these beautiful signs. It was sad. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's why we always bring up graffiti. Documenting graffiti was documenting something that was disappearing, something that was underappreciated. And then documenting these small mom and pop stores, the same thing. We saw them as disappearing and also underappreciated by, at the time, by many of the public. I mean, now there's been a resurgence of, of interest in small businesses. I mean, at least that's what politicians say. Mm-hmm. What's, what's true and what, what is said are two totally different topics of conversation, but, you know, we're glad that we documented it. So I've heard you describe like this very analog process when you began your career, but the way I discovered your work is on Instagram. I wonder if you could talk about what you do on Instagram feels a little closer to like outright advocacy, you know, like Mm -hmm. has Instagram changed what it is you do or how it is you do it? Well, it took us a while to realize that this is great that we have these books, but books cost money. And yeah, you can take it out from the library. Well, they have all our books in the New York Public Library system. And there's actually a, a good deal of libraries in the country. I don't know about you know abroad, but here in the United States that, that have our storefront books. So you don't have to spend money. You can take it out for free, but it's not reaching a very wide audience. And especially because we had a small independent book publisher that doesn't, you don't go into Barnes and Noble and see a giant display of it. You know, that's, unfortunately, we learned a lot about the book industry that it's not the merit of your book. It's 
who publishes your book and how much money well, like you anything pay to else. It. Yeah, you like know, any, just like anything else. Yeah, we're just we're realists. You know, to have it on the front table. But, you know, it's all about money. But a ten thousand print run for Ginkgo Press, who published our book, was massive. Right, that just, was that was our initial print run. So right, for them was, to invest that amount of money in a book, they had no idea what it was going to sell. I think they had sleepless nights. Right. Yeah, we probably. I mean, yeah, it it it, it we we sold that through that print run. We had a couple uh, more print uh, runs, so it did well, but still. It wasn't reaching everyone. It wasn't. It was reaching a very small or what, amount of people. At our frantic level of worry, right? thought was reaching enough. Exactly. So we said, you know what? We have to have a way to be, we, we say, okay, you know, you want to label us as advocates. You know, I guess we, we are. We're small business advocates. How can we really, really help? And how can we reach the younger generation? Because, I mean, we weren't on Instagram. We were very hesitant. I think to. Instagram started in 2010, if I'm not correct. We didn't start our Instagram account in 2014. And the reason why is that we were like, oh, I don't know, you know, is this a good idea? Like, they, th then they can just take our photo yeah. and we can use yeah. it. And, you know, Absolutely. we lose our rights and, and everything like that. But then we, we realized that really... The message is that's not really important in the grand scheme of things. It's not about us. It's about helping save these small businesses. So yeah, get it out put there. our photos out there. And what happens if somebody uses them and they make their own artwork or whatever? I mean, you know, whatever. So so be it. Um, we'll have yeah. to deal with that. Uh, the important thing is to try to reach a younger generation and show them the beauty of these small stores. And not only through the photographs, because always on Instagram, I mean, if at first, I felt like I could type, you know, like put the whole interview in there. But we really realized that people have a very short attention span to put like what we call the gem mm -hmm. of the, the interview, interview. Right. you know, get it down to like maybe a couple of sentences that will grab people in if they bother to read it. Because not, not everybody does, but if they do, they will they will get it like why this is important. What what is it about that store? You know, try to give them insight in a short, quick way of why we took the photo and why it's important for them to keep on uh, supporting this store. Because the bottom line is, for small businesses, is that they need customers. Yeah. Whether it's people coming in their store or shopping online, you know, which is a bigger thing now. But the key of their survival is that they need yeah. you. <laughs> so, yeah, so advocacy, yeah. Right. That's why we, we were started the Instagram. And we really try to post every single day a new store and the, the story behind it as i yeah. like to say if yeah. it, even if it's brief so okay so you're trying to do it every day are you still discovering and surprised by discovering things in this city i know this is a big city but you've had a couple of decades here you've walked all over the place are there still things that you spot and say like huh what's that like i've never seen that before let's check that out I can't even begin to tell you how many times it's happened, especially yeah, how exciting it still is, because we never did this like systematically. We never said, OK, let's take out a map and put like green marker on every, you know, yeah. uh, every street that we've ever walked. <laughs> Highlighter. Yeah. Right. I wish we were systematic because I can tell you that we missed maybe small little blocks. Sometimes I can tell you 100 percent what's happened yep. to us that we got so enthralled by a particular store on one side of the street that we never even looked. We yeah, we never, we never looked around. And now we're walking down that block and we're like, we see a store, shoes for the theater. 
like that just makes theater shoes. Right. And, and we're like, like how did we were right here? Right. Like five years. Like, how do we miss this? Right. We know we were on this block because we know we had shot a store that maybe it's not even there anymore. But yeah, but we were so excited to run and get that yeah. coffee shop. Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh my God. We became fixated on so this. So yes, there's still exciting right. discoveries. And we love new stores. Yep. We still mm-hmm. to this day are documenting something that just opened. I mean, it's exciting, especially during the pandemic, that places are opening. Yeah. Like who would think, you know, we documented um, yep. two pizzerias um, just recently. Like why on earth would you open a pizzeria in the middle of a pandemic? What do you, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like, right. Pressure. Yeah. How could you even do that? But they did. And that's so exciting to us because right. we don't want to see empty stores. That's the bottom line. But that said, it's getting harder to find. Right. It's hard. It's getting harder to find. I mean, because the, it's this real estate game where they, I mean, especially when it's owned by a corporation, they don't want to lower the, the price of the real estate, you know, the rent yeah. for the store to make it viable but for that's somebody why, small. And that's new. why, long story, we got on Instagram. Yeah, but that's yeah. why that's why um, we, we're sharing on Instagram. We're trying to help save the ones right. that are still around. I mean, yes, I keep, we do put up photos of places that don't exist anymore, but that's almost like a shock and awe factor because yeah. people seem to really lament the ones that are gone and then it's almost like okay if you want things to look this way again if you want that kind of store yeah okay look back this is gone now we can't do anything about that we can't get that one back but maybe that will hit you in the head that yeah you grab them by the lapels and shake them and you say look "Look, this next photo this have you ever even been in here you're you're, right this one you can go to this one this one go to this one now right you can get a bagel here you don't (laughs) you don't you know, that, that <laughs> it would be okay. It's safe. Right. Don't yeah. wait until. Yeah. Right. Don't wait until it's too late. Right. Exactly. Right. This was such a great conversation. I, I really, I love your work. I love seeing it on Instagram. I love thinking about the New York City that still exists. I'm thinking about the city that we're going to have when my children are adults. Um, and so I thank you for that. And thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you, guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You know, Ruman, I have lived on my block for 20 years, and uh, that might be why I just thought this was such a wonderful interview with a delightful 
couple. I love that they're totally self-taught. It's a really important reminder that goes back to actually one of the first conversations you and I ever had on this show, which is you don't have to like go to graduate school and get your MFA or whatever. I mean, I did in part because the program was free and I was changing professions from director to writer and felt like I needed to jumpstart that process. But lots of people don't. You didn't. I agree. I think most education in the arts is grounded in practice. And there are two ways to practice. You can go to graduate school and devote your time to it, or you can find a way to incorporate practice into your daily life. And clearly James and Carla were able to do that by virtue of arriving in the city when it was slightly more affordable, getting a deal on an apartment, all of those things that we talked about. At the end of the day, the results are, they're not the same, but they're probably not dissimilar. If you put in the hours, you're going to learn, you're going to get better. Yeah, I just love that moment where they're looking at the top of the camera and noticing for the first time that there are like settings on there. I mean, that's that's just incredible. I also love that you asked them about getting on the gram. And their answer, I think, has a lesson for all of us. You know, you have to figure out what the audience is you want to reach. And then to some extent, you have to actually go where they are instead of expecting them to come to you. And all of those calculations have real trade-offs, right? Like they want to reach a wide audience and inspire people to care about, you know, the particularities of their city and, and small businesses and things like that. But to get to those people, they have to make their peace with actually giving away a lot of their work for free and quite possibly having it ripped off and used by people in ways they didn't intend. That is an unfortunate reality of the contemporary marketplace, right? I don't even mean the economic marketplace in terms of an ad agency stealing an image that you had made and using it for a commercial. I mean more in terms of cultural attention. Things are happening in virtual space, especially for the last 15 months or so. I don't think that it's imperative to exist on the internet, but I do think it's very clear that social media puts power into the hands of the creator that used to be vested in, I don't know, magazine editors or gallerists or the people who controlled the levers of the culture. Those forces still play a big role in what audiences get to see and discover, but it's not really the same equation anymore. Yeah, totally. I, I was also really interested in, you know, there's this very fine line that they walk, right, between documenting the sort of fragile, transient, disappearing aspects of New York while trying to resist the romanticization of nostalgia. I mean, I think everyone who lives in New York mourns this sort of rosy-hued vision of the New York they first moved to. But that's not really what their project is about. How do you think they avoid that nostalgia trap? I think you're right that there's a fine balance there. But I also think you're right that their work isn't really about that. Their work isn't arguing for a return to some vanished New York. It's about celebrating the New York that still exists. So, yes, there's an M&M store, whatever an M&M store might be, in Times Square. And yes, that's like a deeply depressing thing to ponder about this once great city, but the groovy Greek diner or that place on Atlantic Avenue where you can buy essential oils and dry fruits from the Middle East or I know that, that little place. Ukrainian, you know that place, <laughs> yeah. it's not far from your house, that little Ukrainian place in the East Village where you can buy wooden Easter eggs, they're still there, you know? So I think what James and Carla's work is saying is go there, buy stuff, talk to these people and marvel at the weird dynamic city that belongs to all of us. 
Right. And, you know, that's not to say, of course, that nostalgia is bad or that, you know, the the affection we have for our neighborhood joints is is somehow weird or suspect. Because, I mean, there are many small businesses that are really important to our lives. And when they go away, we kind of mourn them. And a, a little bird named our producer, Cameron Drews, told me that you have like a somewhat deep and profound relationship with your corner bodega. Uh, can you tell me and maybe our listeners a little bit about this? Yeah, so it, there's a there's a story that I love to tell because it really sort of captures I think, my feeling about where we live. Years ago now, when my older son was commuting back and forth to first grade by big yellow school bus, I was running late to meet him. You know, it's like subway delays, that kind of thing. He was in first grade. He didn't have a cell phone, so I couldn't text him and say, like, Daddy's running late. He's six years old. He couldn't even cross the street by himself. So I ended up getting off the train a stop early and like running like a lunatic down Nostrand Avenue. And I got there just as his school bus pulled up and I realized that we needed a plan, right? And so I told him, look, if if daddy's ever not here, when you get off the bus for whatever reason, you tell the crossing guard or you go in the laundromat and tell the lady at the laundromat and you ask them to take you to the bodega, which is one block up on the corner. The guys who've work there, have known my kids since they were babies in arms, right? The bodega is like a very vital part of our life. It's where I get milk and eggs. It's, you know, it, but it also performs this very specific function of being a safe place. So later I mentioned this to one of the guys at the bodega. I was like, listen, I told my kid, you know, if, if ever I'm not there or he's locked out or whatever, he should come here. And the guy was like, oh yeah, of course. Like the kid across the street is always forgetting his house keys. And he comes <laughs> in here like every day after school and he sits in the back and he eats a bag of potato chips until his parents get home. I, I love this so much. Like I, I always want that store to be there. I always want these guys to be a part of my neighborhood experience And I want everyone to acknowledge how great it is that urban life creates these kinds of relationships. You know, I would never tell my kid to go to the Rite Aid and hang out there all afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Especially the Rite Aid near me where like getting anything is like trying to buy bread during the downfall of the Soviet Union. Uh, You know, for I... um, you know, for me, though, this is a nostalgia trip I'm going to go on, I know. But to me, one of the most important uh, th- businesses in my life uh, was this restaurant that doesn't exist anymore called Borum Hill Food Company. And it was a place that was open for breakfast. And it has, you know, n- normal tables, but it also had this huge round table that people would just sit at. And then everyone sitting there got to know each other. And then everyone who ate breakfast there got to know each other, like over the course of the last three years that it was open. Uh, I ate breakfast there six days a week. So I ate breakfast there every weekday and then one weekend with Anne. Uh, I made friends for life there. There's one couple that met there and are still together to this day. Uh, I got involved in the anti-racism think tank that I used to work for because one of the founders was like one of my friends at breakfast there. Uh, You know, so it was it was really like uh, connected me to the neighborhood in this really deep way. I mean, that was 15 years ago and I still see the people I met there or people I know through them. In fact, I, I think I first met you, Ruman, cause you're a friend of a friend I made there, um, you know, all over the place in a way that's completely shaped my adult life. I mean, it's very, it's really wild how big an impact these sorts of places can have. I mean, this is what Jane Jacobs was famously writing about in The Life and Death of Great American Cities, is that the city is more than just a sort of physical place. It's a physical place that enables these kinds of intimate psychic connections. And so I think when James and Carla are talking about, like, go visit this great Salvadoran grocery or go, like, 
poke around at this place that sells shoes for the theater, which is like the funniest, most specific I love thing it. I've I love ever it. heard. What they're really talking about is remind yourself that you are a part of this city also, and that these relationships really, as you're saying, like you don't actually know where they will take you. You don't mm-hmm. know if like someday the Mexican guy whose last name you don't even know down the corner at the bodega might actually step in and like really help your family out by yeah. picking up your kid at the bus stop. That's yeah. no small thing. That's no. no small thing. And that is like such a beautiful aspect of urban life. And I want people to acknowledge it while it still exists. Yeah, totally. And, you know, this is reflected for me in a kind of, I don't know, like a weird psychic phenomena that I've been trying to wrap my brain around for some time. This, what feels like a real paradox of our age is that thanks to things like, you know, streaming services, stuff like that, we have an overwhelming ability to differentiate and individuate ourselves if we wanted to. And yet, Sometimes I feel like when when you're looking at the world, like everything feels homogenous and prefabricated. It's not only the blocks on which we live, which are like, oh, bank, bank, real estate office, bank, bank, real estate office, our souls, our taste, our political opinions. It just feels like something is like smoothed everything out with a trowel. And that's really bad if you're working creatively, right? And so I have to ask you, do you have habits of mind or creative habits to to protect your sort of interior small businesses, the the, the theater shoes of the mind? Uh, um, is that a thing that you work to do? This is such a philosophical question, Isaac. I'm not a huge fan of eccentricity for its own sake, but I share your kind of skepticism of this creep of conformity, especially in cultural consumption. You know, in some ways, I think it's always been this way. Like, marketing has always determined what audiences are aware of, and now it's algorithm and technology that do that. But there is some weird inversion happening. If you think about Richard Yates's Revolutionary Road, right, in that novel, the city was the opposite of bland suburban conformity. Like the spoiler alert for a 50 year old novel, they die, they die. She dies in part out of a desire to live in urban life. The idea that urban life is so dynamic and so interesting and the suburbs are the death of the soul. That's really changed now that New York City has a Starbucks, a Chase Bank, a CVS, a Sotheby's International Realty, (laughs) like every other block. Yeah, and you know, I, I do think that there's a way in which these two problems are connected, or at least in some ways the solution to them is connected, right? Which is that one of the the small businesses that is so useful are things like bookstores, or they don't really exist anymore, but video rental places, DVD stores or whatever. And in part, it's because you are interacting with human beings who you can say, oh, I like X, Y, and Z. What is the next thing I should get? And they will tell you, but it's filtered through their own peculiar subjectivity. And then you start sort of going down these weird roads through a kind of human interaction. Yes, I love that the takeaway that we can end this episode on is go to your local independent bookstore. (laughs) Absolutely. It's a great takeaway. Study the wall of staff recommendations. Find the bookseller with whom you think you share a perspective And you can actually talk to them. You can sort of buttonhole them and be like, hey, did you like this book? Tell me the truth. And that is so wonderful. And that is just a great aspect of life in New York. I don't want to see that go away. So spend your money at your local independent bookstore. Absolutely. 
We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And yes, it is time for one final Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Danny Lavery's new show, Big Mood, Little Mood. But I also hope maybe you'd just like to support the work we do here on Working. It's only $1 for the first month. And to learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thanks so much to James and Carla Murray for being our guests this week. As always, thanks to our producer, the stupendous Cameron Drews. Make sure to tune in next week for Isaac's conversation with the author J. Robert Lennon, who has not one, but two new books out this year. Until then, get back to work. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.